Our reading this evening is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, beginning at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of, ho- of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls." But it's really sad, isn't it, in life where you, when you find that you can look at a person or a situation and say, they've thrown it away. Somebody this week past was reminding me about um, Jean van der Velde, who was two strokes ahead in the Open Championship in 1999. And he, he was on the 18th hole, and it was, it was his. And it was about to be a dream come true. He would have been the first Frenchman in 100 years to, to win the Open Championship but he threw it away. And um, some of you are nodding. Some of you remember. I remember watching it on the TV. I'm not a, uh, a big um, fan of golf, but I remember watching that as instead of taking the safe route, he drove for the green, but found the trees, and then the rough, and then the kind of water feature that they have. And then instead of kind of saying, okay, Jean, I'm going to take it easy, have a penalty drop, let's finish this off. He decided to take off his shoes and roll up his trousers and play the ball from the water, and it's just uh, a disaster. And you wanted, I don't know, somebody to say to him, look, stop, think. Think about what you stand to win. Think about what you stand to lose. But he didn't. And um, it was great TV, but it was skin-crawling, horrifying to watch this man throw it all away. And the world of sport has loads of examples like that. 
but we also see it in life around us. Maybe as you think of somebody you were at school with or somebody from, uh, from an old work, uh, you just think they never lived up to their potential. They threw it away. If I think of one of my friends at school, a guy who, I mean, academically, he was brilliant. And I mean brilliant. I, I, um, personally, I was always a solid worker, but this guy had real kind of sparkle. But you have to say he, he made some choices in life that weren't brilliant, And um, by the time I lost touch with him a few years back, uh, you'd really have to say that he had thrown away a pretty good hand in life. Well, this letter we've been studying on Sunday nights, Hebrews, is written to Christians who are in danger spiritually of throwing it all away. And if you look down, you can see that in verse 35. That's what the writer says to them. "Don't Don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward seems they were in danger of doing that. These guys were in danger of throwing it all away, possibly in a moment of madness, probably more likely in a kind of a gradual drift away from trusting in Jesus and living for him. Either way, these guys are in danger of packing it in, throwing it all away, and so this letter was written to them as the much-needed word of encouragement, of warning, of advice. And the writer says, come on now, Let's not lose our heads. Let's finish this thing. Let's do it right, right to the end. I'm going to suggest that the final verse of the chapter, verse 39, is a good summary of all that the writer is trying to say here. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. That is what he wants for his readers. And it's what I want for you. It's what I want for me. If you're in the habit of learning verses, and that is a good habit for Christians, so that the Bible is there in your head when you need it, this would be a good one, I think, from the book of Hebrews. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Straight away, that verse tells us that in life there are two potential outcomes for each one of us in our lives, two potential outcomes. Either we can shrink back and be destroyed or we can have faith, faith in Jesus, and preserve our souls. Now, I don't know you all, if you're not yet a convinced Christian, if you're here, you're investigating, that's brilliant. You need to make your mind up about this. You need to make your mind up about whether this is true or not, these two outcomes, and which one you're heading for. It might not be true, but if it is, there could hardly be anything more urgent, more relevant. But the thing is that these verses were written for Christians. Uh, this letter wasn't written to people who were skeptics or who were just, you know, investigating. It's addressed to people who were Christians. So they had some years behind them, some experience. They were seasoned believers in the church, in the eyes of other people. These would have been Christians and also in their own minds as well. And yet, that's who the writer's talking to. And he says, you guys are in danger of throwing it all away, shrinking back, and being destroyed. And so all of us, whoever we are, we need to listen to what this passage is saying. Um, It's quite shocking, as we'll see. It's quite stark. Um, There's nothing could be more important, more urgent for us this evening. Because the writer is talking about eternal glory or eternal misery. And as I said last week, I think some of the things that he says here are meant to wake us up. And yet also, what he says here very warmly 
shows us how to keep going. If that's in our heart of hearts what we want, the writer will show us how to keep going. So we're going to look at the passage under the two halves of verse 39, if that makes sense, the shrinking back and then the preserving our souls. But as we, as we begin, let me pray. I pray for God's help for all of us. Lord, these are sober things that we read of in your word. And so this evening, the end of the day as it is, the end of long weeks, many of us or the beginning as it is, we ask for your help now that you would focus our minds on the issues of eternity and how we stand with you. Lord, help us to be honest with ourselves. Those of us who would see ourselves as Christians, help us to be honest and not to shrug off this warning as applying to other people only. Help us to examine ourselves and to listen to your word. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Well, okay, first of all, we're going to think about the danger that the writer sees here, the first half of the verse, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. We've seen it before, but Hebrews really is a letter about endurance, and that's true in this passage. So have a look, please, verse 23. He says, let us hold fast our confession. That's endurance language, isn't it? Hold fast. Verse 35, through down there. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. We've seen that. For you have need, verse 36, of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And then verse 39, our verse. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. It's a letter about endurance. But the question is, why do the Hebrews need endurance? I guess there are lots of reasons, but why was this letter written? Why were these people needing this message about endurance? And as you read the letter, there are a number of clues that come together. It seems that these guys were Christians who would come out from a Jewish background, and it seems that they were being tempted back into their old ways, their old faith. Why was that attractive? Well, a number of reasons that the writer has built up. First of all, they're being drawn back into a form of religion that is more visible, more visible. There is something comforting about tangible, uh, real, physical, religious symbol. Um, The presence of a building that is special and holy in some way, or the presence of a special person who can comfort us with words of authority, a priest. The Christians had left all that behind. All they had now was faith in an invisible Jesus who had lived but had died, raised, was now in heaven. And so slowly they're beginning to, it seems there's not much to hang on to here. And they're being drawn back into looking for something that is a bit more visible. Pardon me if... um, This illustration is a bit eccentric, but you can picture one of the young Hebrew Christians going for tea with his granny. We can call her Granny Isaacson. And she's saying, oh, my dear, why don't you come back to your Jewish roots? Christianity really doesn't have anything to commend it. You don't have any priests. There's no sacrifices or a temple. It's all just ideas, words, shadows. Come back to reality. And that's why the writer has been saying, hasn't he, if you were here last week, no, 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 
Christ is the reality. Those Old Testament pictures, they were the shadows pointing forward to Jesus, the reality, his sacrifice in heaven, so that we can draw near to God now. Because they're being drawn back into what is visible. Um, Secondly, they're being drawn back to something that is more respectable. Even if Judaism was a religious minority in the Roman world, it was at least a known quantity there would have been Jews all over the empire in different places. And um, nobody likes that sense, the label of being swept up into some novelty, some fad. And I suppose the Christians might have begun to doubt. Oh, maybe there isn't so much roots in what I believe now. Maybe I should go back into the safe haven of Judaism. And again, you can picture Granny Isaacson as she says to her, her beloved grandson, why don't you come back? Come back to your heritage, all the traditions. And so we'll see again how the the writer, especially next week, is saying, no, 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 not at all. All that Jewish heritage was pointing to Christ. Abraham was a believer. Moses was a believer. They lived as outsiders. They weren't respectable. And if they were around now, they would be believers in Jesus. We'll see that next week. Thirdly, I guess they're being drawn back into a form of religion that is more safe. If you look at um, verses 32 to 34 in the passage that we're looking at this evening, you can see that, at times at least, for the Hebrews, the suffering of standing with Jesus and with his people was pretty pointed. Jail, the confiscation of property. We don't have that in this country, not, not really, no, but in around the world. Christians do know that, and we face the kind of verbal version of it, the shame, the being made to feel like a bit of an outsider sometimes, and it's, um, it's easy to retreat into a form of religion that is just a bit safer. You're not going to get it in the neck for being an out-and-out follower of Christ. So visible, respectable, safe, and possibly, possibly also slightly less morally demanding what we see of the Christian life, particularly in, in chapter 11 next week, is it means living as a stranger. It means living for the world to come, not for this world, not settling down, not investing ourselves and seeking our pleasures and reward in the here and now, but living like a, a pilgrim. That's the language that's used. We're heading for heaven in um, tents rather than settled houses here. That's the pressure they felt, and many of us will know that that's the pressure we feel also. Sometimes we feel that something visible, tangible, a known quantity would be better than just an airy-fairy hope in Jesus in the sky. And that can lead in all sorts of directions. So from a more straightforwardly Bible-focused church, and often it can lead people down more of a kind of high church route. And I should say, I'm not knocking at all everything in that sort of a tradition. I think we could learn a lot from many of the prayers that are so filled with content and reverence for the Lord. And yet it is possible, I think, for visible religion, uh, it becomes a visible religion where we find a comfort in the rituals themselves and the ceremonies themselves, instead of the Christ to which those things were meant to point. 
And at an extreme end, it starts to hark back into the Old Testament, moving away from the reality of the invisible Christ in heaven to whom we must draw near. Or a different, um, I suppose it um, might depend on your background, your, your personality, but this desire for something more tangible, more visible, if it doesn't lead folks away from a more straightforwardly Bible-focused church into a high church, maybe more into a kind of a, a Pentecostal or, or um, what the um, label of um, charismatic church, although it's not a particularly useful label because people mean so many different things by it. And again, I, I'm not knocking at all everything in that sort of a tradition. I think, again, there's a lot that we can learn from a church where it's very obvious that people have a heartfelt appreciation for Christ. And yet it is possible to start to want visible signs of God at work now, or a visible reward now, instead of a future one for which we are waiting. We, we feel the pull sometimes of a visible, visible religion. We seek to draw near to Jesus in heaven, and sometimes, sometimes in our feelings, it lacks a certain reality, and we think that maybe something more tangible would help us, or something more respectable. Um, it's not easy to be known as an, an evangelical Christian. It's a very uh, a dirty word in many places. Somebody who takes the Bible seriously. It's um, not always an easy thing to own up to. If you have conversations in the staff room or with neighbors, not an easy thing to own up to. Oh, you go to that church. I see. And we can long to head for the middle of the road, somewhere that's, yeah, still a Christian, but less edges, fewer edges, more respectable. Well, the, uh, the urge for safety... We want to keep our heads down, down below the parapet. Don't talk about it. Often we don't want to invite people to things like the Quench event or the ladies' event because we'd rather keep our heads down. We want to be safe. And safe means private, private religion. Or we also feel the urge to settle down. We'll see next week. Faith means living in the light of invisible realities, Rather than what we see, it means living for the future, as I said, rather than this, this present world. And that gets wearing, gets really wearing as life goes on. You see friends around you, what's normal in our culture, spending money on normal things, things you can have now, things you can enjoy now, whereas the Christian investing for the eternal future, giving money away, starts to be a bit annoying. Or not money, but how we use our time. Think about our weekends. We see friends who are heading off all over the place, whereas we have a thought, well, I should probably stick around and be at church, or at least be at back for Sunday. How many of us have had weekend parties spoiled by having to get back for church on Sunday? And maybe that's just me because I'm paid to be here, but um, I'm well acquainted with Saturday night trains back. Or for you, as you think about your evenings, friend with a very free social calendar, and yet you're thinking, well, I, I really should be back for small group because that's important to you. And over time, these things get wearing as you live for the future instead of simply for now. 
and at times we get really weary of it. And at times we think, you know, I, I'm going to slow down a bit. Just for a while. I mean, surely I've done enough. Just for a while, I'm going to have a weekend off. A month off. A year off. Being a keen Christian. And it's there that the writer says to us, that is dangerous. Verse 26. You'd better not turn away. As we come to verse 26 in that section, it's helpful for us to have had that think about what's in the background here because the phrase there, for if we go on sinning deliberately, what does that mean? It certainly isn't talking about the normal sin that lingers in all of us that we despair of. It keeps rearing its head. We feel bad about it. We repent of it. If you've had a bad week with the sins that you're battling with, I would hate for you to, to be unduly alarmed by this. It's not what it's talking about. And I don't think it's primarily meaning some sort of a moral lapse. You know how we sometimes hear about with Christians some sort of moral lapse that we then persevere with, something that's very dramatic. I think for most of the Hebrews, it's more likely to have been that sense of growing tired of following Jesus. And so they're looking at a different path. They're trying it out. They're in danger of sticking with it. But the writer warns us, if you press on with that path, you might never make it back. One of the things I think we're slow, perhaps, to learn is that repentance, turning back to God, turning back to God wholeheartedly, is not something that is entirely within our power. We think, oh, I'll, uh, I'll sin and then I'll, I'll repent. Or I'll take the foot off the gas for a while, just until I've got some goal, some stage post out of the way. And then I'll, then I'll turn back to God and be a really keen Christian. But it doesn't work like that. Because we, we sin or we slow down, and our hearts are affected by that. Hardened is the language that Hebrews uses. And what this passage is saying is that there comes a point of no return. Just quietly, please, on your own, have a look at verses 26 through to very stark language, isn't it? Very stark. But that's because it's talking about something that is very shocking. It's talking about somebody who would have said that they understood and valued the sacrifice of Jesus on their behalf. Somebody who would have said, oh yeah, I, I understand that I deserved God's judgment, but that Jesus stood in my place, that on the cross he took the punishment that I deserved so I could be free. But now I'm not that fussed about all that really. I used to sing the songs, Amazing Grace, My Sin is Gone, but now if I'm honest, I'm a bit more focused on other things, more concerned about, and you can fill it in for yourself, whatever it is, your work or whatever's going on at the weekend. And actually, in my heart of hearts, in terms of how it really affects me, all that 
Jesus stuff, the priesthood stuff, the cross, it's not that big a deal to me. Not that big a deal. The death of the Son of God laying down his life for his creatures who didn't deserve it. Not that big a deal anymore to me. And many of us here will know people in that kind of a situation, people who, who would say, oh, I used to be really into all that, but uh, not much anymore. People who are either self-consciously, nowhere with the Lord, or who are Christians in name only. And here's the point. The writer is saying, the writer is saying to us tonight, please, not you, not you, my friends, not you. And this has got to affect us. This has got to affect us emotionally as we read language like this. You know, this is here for a reason. The Bible doesn't always speak like this. There are times when it does, and this is one of them. And so we need to let it hit us. So let me ask, what are you, what are you afraid of? What are you really afraid of? in life. I guess for many of us it'll be something to do with family. You know, as, as parents get older, we're afraid of seeing them growing weaker. We're afraid of them dying because they've always been there and we're going to have to deal with that. Or sometimes the other way around, we're, we're, we worry about children and where are they heading in life and Profound fears about family or, or money. Um, it strikes me that if any of you are financially liable for a roof, then you may have been particularly not enjoying the weather we've been having with the wind and the rain, and you're wondering where that water's getting to and where it's lying and what sort of a dry rot it's causing. Or um, retirement. I guess that, that will be a, a worry for many of us. Not for some of us, but um, for many of us. Do we have enough saved up? It's a real issue, money trouble, and you think, ah, my position's not, not very secure, and if I'm honest, I'm a bit scared about how things will pan out. For others of us, it might be sickness. I guess, um, you know, as life goes on, we start to see friends, people our own age get sick, and then that's it, that's it, that's the start of the downward slope towards infirmity, and we fear that, fear that for ourselves, for our spouse perhaps, or if you're younger, I don't know what what you would really fear in life, missing out, missing out in life, the fear of failure in life, the sense that I, I didn't play well the hand that was dealt me, I didn't live up to the potential, the expectations of my family. Plenty to worry about, isn't there? And we're right to fear some of those things. But this passage is raising a fear that is much, much greater than any of those, which is a fear of being without God in the world. Because with God, even the things, the hard things that we just talked about become bearable. We can face them because we know that we are facing them in the hands of a God who we don't always understand, but who we do know, always know, is good and for us. And that makes the world of a difference. Whereas without him to face those things, we're on our own. 
And even if none of those things bother you, even if you sail through life, what about the end of it? Again, just quietly on our own, have a look at verses 30 and 31. They're very stark, aren't they? And the writer is saying to these people he knows, he cares for, he's saying, friends, please not you. Set your course to stick with Jesus. Please, not you. There are always people in the evening service, folks who are are young. I mean, like the teenagers, those of you who are in. As you begin to set your own course in life, I wonder what you make of this. For many of you who are here, this is what your parents believe, and this is the course that they have set in their lives. What about you? It's nearly time to decide for some of you. And the writer is saying, please, my friends, set your course to stick with Jesus. Don't throw it all away. Keep on going with him. But the question is, how? How? Next week we'll see the examples of how. Uh, Example after example in chapter 11 of what it looks like to live a life of faith and to keep going with that until the end. We'll see Noah, who looked like a wally because he built an ark in the middle of a place with no water. But he was trusting God and what he had said about the invisible future. We'll see Abraham, who lived like a wanderer, instead of settling down like any normal person would, because he was trusting in what God said about the invisible future. We'll see Moses, who threw away a life in Egypt's royal family, because he trusted what God said about the invisible future. These people were believers. And the writer says, now follow their example. And that's why he says in our verse, verse 39, the second half that we're moving on to now, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. That's all it takes to keep on going, to survive faith. We think, well, that's not very hard. That's something every Christian has. Well, that's the point. Because faith isn't... Uh, some past event in our life, how we responded on a summer camp or at a meeting. It's not about a past event only. It's about how you live now. Are you living now like those people in the light of what is visible, this world, or invisible? Are you living for that, for the future? That's the bottom line. Are you a person of faith, Or are you entirely governed by your eyes and what you can see? Are you an eyes person or an ears person, hearing what God says about the future and setting your course in line with that? That's more for next week. In our passage, what we have, what we get from the writer, is four practical expressions of what it will look like to live that kind of life of faith and perhaps four, four ways, four things we can do to help us to keep on going. 
Four things. Let me run through them. Number one, looking at the start, verse 19, he says, let us draw near. And I've already made the joke about this being like salad and good for us um, on the 4th of January if you were here, because they all begin with lettuce. Do you get that? I guess quite a lot of you weren't here, so I'll make it again. Um, it's like salad. It's good for us, because they all begin with lettuce. Ha ha. Um, let us draw near. So verse 19, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. It's really simple what that verse is talking about. It's talking about drawing near to God as you approach him, as you pray. Drawing near to the invisible God through the invisible Jesus who is in heaven as day by day we commit ourselves into his hands, as we talk to him as though he were a real person who we can't see, but who we Yet we know. And there's no real technique that the writer talks about. There's no time requirements. You know, five minutes a day, half an hour a day, nothing like that. It's very simple. Draw near to God. If you would be the sort of person who will keep on going, then you need to stay in touch with the living God. Draw near to him where he is in the invisible heaven. Well, one day you will be, one day you will see him, but for now, don't lose touch with him. And I know that for many of us, there's things we've heard before, but that's not the point, is it? The point is, are we doing it? So that's number one, draw near. Number two, hold fast. This is verse 23, the second piece of lettuce. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I think what he is talking about there in the context is an act of will. It is the Christian saying, I will not be blown off course. When you feel the pull of the world, the urge to slow down, what he's talking about, I think, is the act of will that says, I recognize that. I acknowledge that that's a dangerous thing, but I resolve that I will stick with Jesus. And it's likely that in a group this size, some of us here tonight will be really feeling the pressure at the moment. And we face choices about a job, where to be in the country. You've got a choice. Are you going to prioritize advancement? or your own spiritual good, being in a place where you'll be fed and looked after in a local church. Many of us will face that sort of a choice. Or a choice about uh, a relationship, perhaps, and whether to pursue that, regardless of the spiritual consequences. Often we know that that's not going to affect us well in our walk with Jesus, but we choose it anyway. Or like I was saying, as a teenager... And you, you think, well, it's, you know, I'd, I'd rather chew my own hand off than be known publicly as a Christian at school. And I, I'm going to keep quiet. And the pressure is there. 
And the writer is saying, no, no, let us hold fast. It's resolve language, isn't it? And that's what some of us need to do this evening. Number three, let us consider how to stir up one another. It's a very long sentence, verses 24 and 25. And let us, to, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's good to be a provocative Christian in the right sort of a sense. We need that mindset as we come to church on Sunday, not just... Uh, will my needs be met? But who can I serve? We've all got something to bring. That's what the Bible teaches. We all have something to bring into this great, uh, the body of a local church. All have a, a contribution to make. Who can I serve? Who can I stir up? It's also why, as a church, we place such an emphasis on small groups. It's not possible for well, everyone understand that, but in some way we, we need to be spending more time with Christians in the week and building the kind of relationships where we can speak openly with one another, because that's hard to do on a Sunday. We need to think about the sort of a friend we are. Some you know, friends in the congregation, people we talk to more often, we need to think, am I a provocative friend in a good way? Am I stirring up other people? to love and good works, or is it just about um, having, a, a, having a cozy time? I was thinking of um, one man in the congregation who, who always asks good questions, often slightly out of the blue, but he'll ask a question about something in the Bible that he's been reading, and it sets you thinking. It starts a wholesome, edifying conversation. I think sometimes we need to swallow our pride a bit and not be afraid of being seen as... I don't know, super spiritual, because it's not. We're just trying to stir one another up as we say that sort of thing. And then with one or two, with one or two people, we need to have the kind of friendship that is deeper and the kind of um, permission that is wider to ask one another questions and to really encourage one another, sometimes in uh, quite a direct way to keep on following the Lord Jesus and to do so flat out. Not neglecting to meet. That's what he says. That's a part of this. That being among people, even just for a short time in the week, who share our view of the invisible things that really matter in life. Most people don't share that. It's fine. They're... But just for a short time, being amongst others who see things God's way and understand the invisible future that we're living for. It's a powerful refreshment. But of course, we're not the ones who need to hear that because we're here. But actually, we all do, don't we? We all do. And then number four, look forward. There isn't a lettuce here. I've added this in, but it's there in the passage. It's there if you look at verse 25. Uh, and all the more, stir up one another, encourage one another, all the more, as you see the day drawing near. And then in the section at the end of the chapter, verses 35 to 39, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. But you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, 
you may receive what is promised. For, and he quotes, yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and preserve their souls. He's talking about the eternal future, invisible, but very real. It's what we're waiting for. It's what we need to be consciously waiting for, watching for, longing for, speaking about, finding ways of reminding ourselves about the day when what is now invisible will become visible and all there is and all that matters as the Jesus to whom we have drawn near in what is in some ways uh, an unsatisfying, incomplete way drawing near to the invisible Christ will give way to face-to-face and more real than we could ever imagine. So it's not rocket science, is it? And yet this is what the life of faith will look like until the aspiration or the hope or the plea of verse 39 comes true and becomes for one of us, all of us, the best life story that a person could ever have. Thinking of the funeral tomorrow. And what great words to be able to say at the end of a life, the end of your life or mine, that we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the example of a life of which those words can be said in truth. And we pray, Lord, for ourselves that when it comes to our funerals, they will be true of us. Lord, please help us in the midst of all the pressures that we face and feel. Help us to trust you, to listen to you, to draw near to you, and to long for that future that is with you. Help that to be more and more real to us, we pray. Draw us onto it. In Jesus' name, amen.